We're talking about the cost of Christmas in December, and we've come to Mary. Now, we started with the Magi, the wise men, and we talked last week about Joseph and what it cost Joseph to be part of the Christmas story. And this week, we want to talk about Mary. Um, but before we do that, I want to ask you guys, like, what is a tapestry? Describe a tapestry to me. You know what a tapestry is? It's... Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a big wall hanging, um, with so, usually depicting some scene from some event, some some happening in history. Thick thread, yeah, pretty usually pretty thick, pretty heavy, dense. You calling me dense, or are you talking about the car? Uh, yeah, okay. Either way, either way. Okay, sure. So, so if you know anything about tapestry, the people who make a tapestry, they, they've thought about the picture for a long time and they know what threads and what colors they have to introduce at what point in the, in the weaving process in order to make that come alive, in order to add those colors so that as this thing basically is back and forth, horizontal in the loom, you know, that shuttle back and forth, as it, as it continues up, you're getting a picture right? You don't get to go back later and fill in with markers like, oh, here's the picture. Like, you have to plan this very carefully from the beginning. Yeah, Janae. Well, another kind of tapestry is where they take either embroidery threads or, or wool threads, and they make yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Wow. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. But it takes a good bit of thought and intentionality to, to do that. Um, any of those methods, I think, would be well beyond my skill set. Pain, yes, and it, yeah, and likely some pain involved. Especially, I, I, I have all thumbs, and I've tried to stitch things onto clothing or onto. I, I tried to put a cool uh, patch on one of my hats, and uh, I bled greatly in that endeavor. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, yeah. The scripture is like a tapestry in in this way. I think there's with within the tapestry of the Word of God, there is a single scarlet thread. It's what we call theologians call this, that's woven throughout the whole of the tapestry of the Word of God, and this thread begins in Genesis three. The scarlet thread begins in this exchange between God and Adam and Eve and the serpent when he says to uh, to Eve in particular. Your seed, Eve, which is a biological impossibility, right? Speaking of a virgin birth, your seed will crush his head. Speaking of the serpent and his kingdom, that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And so that first mention, um, that scarlet thread begins at this prophecy about a virgin birth. And, and then you get to Isaiah, and Isaiah is a member of the royal court of Israel. He's highly educated. Uh, if you read Isaiah, uh, if, you, if you study any of the original languages, you're going to find that he employs very sophisticated language and vocabulary. And, um, and, and he gives us in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, a prophecy. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. So first, Isaiah says, a child is born. That speaks to the humanity of the child that's being promised, right? It's the humanity of Jesus. But note the double speak with a different meaning. That's very common Hebrew parallelism. That's the way they would write poetry, right? And so the, the son is given, the, the child is uh, unto us a child is born and the son is given speaks to the divinity of Jesus because the son's preexistent. He's part of the triune Godhead, right? So the child is born, the son is given. That's the same person, the God man, Jesus. And in this moment, uh, in just a moment, we'll read Gabriel's uh, announcement to Mary and he's going to confirm the ultimate destiny of Jesus to reign and rule from his father David's throne, which did not exist during the time of Jesus, thus could not have been fulfilled in any way. And so that makes it a future event that is still coming. Now, last week I mentioned um, in passing the daughters of Zelophehad in regards to there being two genealogies. This is a big question, right? Uh, even from my campus ministry days back in, in, in Georgia, this would get thrown at me when I'd be doing some evangelism. Well, why are there two different genealogies of Jesus? Why are, why, are there, why are they so different? And for a long time, I didn't, I didn't know. But you know what I'd say to the skeptics and the atheists who would try to pin me down? I would say to them, I don't know. Does that surprise you? I didn't just make stuff up, right? I would say, I don't, I don't know. But I tell you what, I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to look it up and I'm going to do the homework. And if you want to grab coffee tomorrow, I'll be here at like 1 p.m. Come, come find the answer if you want it, right? So just take that as an encouragement. If somebody pounces on you with the aha, what about this thing? I got you, Christian. Just tell them, say, you know what? I don't know. But um, if you want to have lunch this week, I'll go home and I'll do my homework and, and I'll have the answer for you. It's a great way to develop a relationship towards evangelism, right? So Zelophehad, you don't need to turn to Numbers 27, but I do want to mention this because it's really important to the Christmas story. So back in Numbers 27, um, there were some single ladies, the daughters of Zelophehad, whose father was dead, but he didn't have any sons to pass along his inheritance to. And if you know your history, your history of Israel, that's a big deal, right? The land, the tribal allotments, the family farm, everything gets passed on to the male children. And so there were no sons of Zelophehad, only daughters. So uh, God made an allowance that the daughters could marry and that their husbands, if they married within their tribe, those husbands would be adopted into their family so that the family name would continue, that the land would stay with the family. It wouldn't, it wouldn't get messed up, right? Um, so such is the case with Luke's genealogy from Adam. Luke starts with Adam, the first man. And remember, Luke's a doctor, so he's concerned with Jesus' humanity. And he tracks that genealogy down to Abraham, the first Jew, and then on to David, the king of Israel. And then instead of going through Solomon, like Matthew does, Luke traces through Nathan, the second son of Bathsheba, the second surviving son of Bathsheba, down to Heli, who's Mary's dad. So it's implied in the text of Luke 3 that Heli had no sons, and so Joseph was adopted into the family 
in accordance with this provision in Numbers 27. So while Matthew traces from David to Solomon the royal line establishing Jesus' legal right to the throne of Israel, Luke traces through David to Nathan in order to avoid that blood curse we talked about last week on Jeconiah. Because God said, I write this man childless. He will never have a descendant on the throne. So in order to avoid that disqualification, there are two genealogies. Isn't that cool? It's almost like God knows what he's doing. Right? Yeah, it's awesome. God chooses to bring about his perfect will through imperfect human beings. Well, take some time. I, I, this isn't in my notes. Read those genealogies. You'll find prostitutes in the lineage of Jesus. Because God uses imperfect people to bring about his perfect will. That's good news for you and me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I, that may be shocking to some of you this morning. You're like, what? I had no idea. Sadie's not perfect. It's true. It's true. It's true. But even those of us who in humility have repented and believed the gospel, we're still imperfect vessels. We're being sanctified to be sure. And we will be glorified in the life to come. But for now we remain imperfect. And so for us, obedience is an act of faith. It's something we do in faith. We're trusting someone that we cannot see and we're choosing to obey his commands in order to move closer to his holiness. And though we have expectations about the outcomes of our obedience, well, usually those are good expectations. We want to obey and then we want to get good things, right? This is, what we, this is how we train our dog at our house. You obey, you get treats. And sometimes we think we're dogs and God's the master. It's like, I did it, treat, please treat. And that's not always the way it works, right? Sometimes our obedience brings hardship and pain. And this is what we've been saying all along in our series on the cost of Christmas, right? Obedience is costly. Obedience is costly. What, what did we learn from the Magi? We learned that the resolve to pursue anything in this life is going to cost you something. It doesn't matter what it is. It's going to cost you something. And then what did we learn from Joseph? We learned that how we see God in moments of disappointment will determine what kind of people we are. Whether we get bitter and jaded and hardened in our hearts because we're uh, disappointed and angry at God or whether we're soft and teachable and at peace because we know that in Christ Jesus all our needs are met in him. So, so I want you to keep this in mind. Let's go... Um, we have to turn to Luke 9. I want to give you Jesus' words before we get to the text with Mary. Je- Jesus said this in Luke 9, 57. As they were going on the road, someone said to Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And you talk about like the, the most best case evangelistic scenario you can imagine, right? Here comes somebody running up to you. Like, I'm a pastor and I'm out on the street hanging out with some of my friends. He's like, dude, I, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want to, I want to come to Christ. It's a great that's awesome. That's not what Jesus said. He, he like makes it really hard for people who are enthusiastic. I don't know. Like we would kick Jesus out of our modern evangelism seminars. We'd be like, no, 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 no. Go away. Go away. Don't say that. Right? It says, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is going to cost you. We're not going to stay in the best hotels on our preaching tours. It's going to be hard. To another one, he said this, follow me. But this person replied, Lord, let, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Ow. That's not politically correct or nice or warm and fuzzy. And yet to another, he said, to another one said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is even fit for the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, follow me, and he says it in the context of going to Jerusalem, having just been rejected in Samaria because he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows that as he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified there. He's clearly saying two things, not just one thing. When he says, follow me, he's saying, follow me. Follow me. You can trust me, know my character, know who I am, follow this person, the God manifest in flesh, the God you can trust, the God who would hang on the cross and say, this is my love for you, trust me. This is how much I love you. But he's also saying, follow me. Follow, obey, right? There's a, there's a me emphasis that we can trust the character of God, but there's a follow emphasis that says you have to trust and obey and take an act of obedience and step forward. There's Jesus, the rabbi, and then there's the mission, right? There's the person that we embrace and there's the, the mission that we join. There's the sweetness and the suffering, And the Lord's always doing more than we know and more than we can see. Every moment, all around us, there are thousands and thousands of purposes that God is bringing about in the lives of men and women that we cannot see. And I love my my mentor and friend, Bob Dukes, used to say, God gets maximum mileage out of everything that he does. Everything that he does. And, And he's right. Though we don't always see it, Even years and years after the event, God is at work in everything that happens in our lives, but we trust and we believe that God is bringing about his good and his pleasing and his perfect will in us, in our hearts and in the world around us because he uses imperfect people just like you and me to bring about his perfect will. So keep that in mind. Let's look at Luke 1, 26 to 38. This is the story of Gabriel's visitation to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Have you ever wondered, why Mary? Why? Why Mary? I'm wondering if there's an angel. Everybody's, oh, there's a balloon floating around. (laughs) It's a sign. 
Now, if it comes down and just like stops right over my head and just follows me everywhere I go, that'll be something, right? <laughs> Have you ever wondered why Mary? What's so special about Mary? I just tell you why Mary is Second Chronicles 16.9, which says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support and strength to those whose hearts are blameless towards him. He's looking constantly for people whose hearts are blameless towards him, people who want to do his will, people who want to obey him, who are yielded to his purposes. There are many tasks that God has purpose to accomplish. And at any given time, there there may be thousands of people who have the natural talents and learned abilities and spiritual gifts to accomplish these tasks. But can I just say to you that the vast majority of them are not available to God. They're just not available. They're unwilling As many of us have said in our own hearts at times, Lord, I want to be close to you. I would love for you to bless me. I've read the prayer of Jabez 15 times. Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me. And God says, but I want you to do this. You're like, sorry. No, not interested. Not interested. It's not a lack of ability. It's not a lack of talent. It's not a lack of gifting. It's a lack of willingness. It's a lack of yieldedness. Some of you may have said to yourself, God can never use me. Can I just say to you, if you're not usable, it's it's only because it's your will. God can use imperfect people. It's not a lack of ability. It's not a lack of talent. It's It's a lack of willingness. God didn't use Mary because she was highly educated. She wasn't. He didn't choose her because she was wealthy. She was poor. Not once does the Bible say that Mary was sinless. In fact, Mary said that her spirit rejoiced in God, her Savior. She, she knew she needed a Savior. Not once does the scripture say Mary was God or that we should worship her, right? We, we read, as the church began in Acts with the apostles, all these things continued in one accord with prayer and supplication. And the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers were there praying. They weren't praying to her. She was praying with them. So why did God choose Mary? She was humble. She was humble and willing. And the simple truth is this. God uses people who desire to do his will. He uses people who want to obey him, who are humble before him. We we must want to do God's will more than we want anything else. And that's why God chose Mary. He saw in her a young woman who desired to honor him and please him more than she wanted anything else. And so God has a definite purpose for what he wants us to be and what he wants us to do, but he will not make us do it. If we don't have a strong desire to do God's will, we're going to miss purposes and experiences and blessings for our lives because we're not stepping out in faith. And for that reason, God will allow some very unpleasant things to happen in our lives to bring us to the place where we desire to do his will. He will do that for us because he loves us. So let's talk about the cost to Mary. Let's talk about what it costs her. Here's the first thing. It costs her her body. It costs her her body. She willingly became the vessel through which the Messiah would come into the world, take on flesh, become a human being. Now I have watched... First-time pregnant mommies go from rock-climbing, risk-taking adventurers and enthusiasts to suddenly becoming women very aware of every potential danger, right? Suddenly it's like, baby, oh, oh, you have a cold? 
could you just go like a mile over there, please? Like, it's just, you know, like these are the people like climbing rocks and doing all this wild adventure stuff and rafting. And then suddenly they're, they're, they're going to have a baby and everything becomes like, stay away, stay away, don't touch. Uh, it, so it's the aversion to risk. How, how much more, can you just think about how much more you would be prone to that kind of thing, ladies, if you're carrying the Messiah of the world? Right? I mean, just think about that. Like salvation depends on this little person growing inside my womb. Like everybody stay away. You grow claws and fangs, you're just like, ah, right? Not every woman succumbs to this reality immediately, this risk aversion, which is why, incidentally, God partners you with men in marriage, those who tend to risk with very little thought involved, so that there's a balance, right? This is, this is why he brought men. It's a good match. It's a good balance. Uh, when, when we were uh, pregnant with Noah, I say we, it was really Jen. I didn't really do much work. Um, eight months. In, in, in the process, it's just, just like four weeks from delivery date. And we were at a ministry conference with the ministry we were working for at the time. And we we're playing full on sand beach volleyball at this conference. And there's my eight month pregnant wife. And she's like di- diving for the ball. And she's going down on her knees to get the, to dig the ball. And, and I'm like, the baby's just going to fall out into the sand like any moment, <laughs> right? So sometimes women become very risk averse and sometimes it just passes them over. But, but the reality is that to, to carry the Messiah, to be part of the first Christmas, to, to bring salvation, to participate in God's plan, to obediently participate in bringing salvation to the world cost her her body. She had to give up her rights to her body. She had to let Messiah come and live and be nurtured in her womb for nine months and carry him and care for him. She had to give up her body. It cost her her reputation. Because Mary also knew that to accept the angel's message was to accept social stigma and rejection. You see, she was already betrothed to Joseph. That meant that they were legally husband and wife with the exception of sexual relations. In every other way, legally, they are married to one another And we know from Matthew's account that Joseph was well aware that the child that was to be born was not his. Just look at Matthew 1, 18 and 19. And so in this situation, Mary would have been labeled an adulteress. And if she were openly accused of adultery by Joseph, Mary would have faced death by stoning according to the Levitical law. Even if Joseph didn't bring charges against her, she still could have been stripped half naked and forced to stand in the center of her village to endure the verbal ridicule and scorn of her neighbors and former friends. She knew that the villagers would taunt her and that they would ostracize her son. She knew it was going to cost him relationships. He'd hear the accusation that he was an illegitimate child and that he would be prohibited from special assemblies. That's Deuteronomy 23. She knew that Joseph's reputation as an observant Jew would be called into question. She knew that he was legally required to divorce her at this point. And no one, and one more connection for Mary was that he could leave her. He could leave her legally. And she would be stranded with this Messiah to be with no father, trying to raise him as a single mom. You not think that that's fearful? That's a place of going. What's going to happen, right? All of this is affirmed in the biblical text. Christ, at one point, we know Mark chapter 6, is mocked as the son of Mary, right? They mock him. They, we know who your father is. It's a clear re- reference to his lack of um, what they consider to be a legitimate father. Mary would have known what was at stake for her child, and yet she's choosing. Listen, she is choosing to trust God 
She is choosing to trust God in this moment to make a way for her. Beyond that, I love this. I had a good friend suggest to me this week that perhaps Mary's motive in going to visit Elizabeth was uh, not, uh, who, who was pregnant, was less about Mary escaping the glares of her neighbors for herself and more about getting out of town so that there was a delay and people making the connection and implicating Joseph. She did it for the sake of his reputation in some ways to give him, buy him time. Like, I think that's legitimate. That could really be the case. That would surely be in keeping with her spirit and demeanor. So what it cost her, it cost her a body, it cost her her reputation, and it cost her her comfort. It cost her her comfort in two ways, physical and emotional pain. She suffered both physical pain. Doing God's will cost Mary her comfort in the form of physical pain. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, but the prophet Micah prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's Micah 5 too. So sure enough, crazy Roman emperor decreed that everybody had to go to the city of their ancestors and be enrolled for taxation. We're going to do a census so we can jack up your taxes. Not that we would know anything about that here. Um, Here's Mary, eight months, three and one half weeks pregnant. (laughs) And she has no choice but to make this long journey on the back of a donkey, which by the way is a really great way to induce labor. And then she arrives in Bethlehem and there's no room available and they give birth to Jesus in an animal stable. And uh, just FYI, natural deliveries free from modern medicine, they tend to be somewhat painful. You may not have known that. That's just my observation. I think most of us are inclined to think about either hospitals and the, the available staff and all the medicine and the supplements and the things that are needed there in that environment or you know, home births, even home births, you know, have clean running water and things that we need. And, and uh, this was not that in any way, shape or form. This was not that. Then there's the, um, the emotional pain. We've already talked about the social stigma of carrying a child out of wedlock in her culture. Um, after this birth, after Jesus' birth, she and Joseph received word. Herod wants to kill their baby, so they have to go move to Egypt until they could safely return to Nazareth. Now, can you, can you just even imagine what it would be like to raise the Son of God? Can you just imagine being a parent and knowing that your kid is God? How do you correct him? How do you punish? Do you punish? Is there even a need to punish or correct? I, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of reasons why that season of Jesus's life is left out of the text because we would like, we're so prone to idolatry. We'd be like, you have to parent like this. Yeah, but my kid's not Jesus. And he's a spanking, right? So it's, how do you you even parent the son of God? There's this emotional strain of watching your firstborn son at some point for Mary be handed over to your Roman oppressors by the very religious leaders that you've been raised to trust and follow. And then as a mommy, you stand there and watch your son torn to shreds, literally beaten, and then nailed to a cross for everyone to see and to mock and spit upon. This is costly. This is costly. On the one hand, this is the most exciting news that Mary could have heard. Gabriel showing up and saying, God has chosen you to be the vessel through whom he's going to bring the Messiah into the world. That's incredible. And, and on the other hand, it's terrifying Many of the Israelites of that day under Roman occupation were hoping for Messiah to come and to free them from their oppressors and usher in a period of prosperity and peace. And no doubt, Mary believed much the same thing and desired to see freedom for her people. And when Gabriel told Mary what God was going to do, she had fear. You need to know she had fear, but she didn't doubt. 
She didn't doubt. In fact, she asked, how shall this thing be, seeing that I've never known a man? She was not expressing doubt in the question as much as she's asking how this awesome thing could take place. She's like, I don't understand, but how are you going to do this? Gabriel proceeded to tell her how it would take place, and he added, for with God, nothing is impossible. Mary says, in effect, well, all right, let's get on with it, right? The promise from God gave her faith to believe that all that he said would come to pass. And that faith also gave her courage to face potential difficulties that would lay ahead for her. So Elizabeth says uh, to Mary, right, in Luke chapter one, and blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Trust him, Mary. Keep believing, keep pressing in in faith and walking in obedience. Trust him, he will make a way. Trust him. So Mary's faith brings us back to our starting point, which is Jesus calling us to himself and to the mission, to the person and to the task, right? The difficulty of obedience along the path for us is overshadowed by the Almighty and his presence in our lives. He said, I'll never leave you, right? He's there. Yes, obedience is hard. Yes, sometimes obedience comes with great joy and excitement. And you do something in faith and then God shows up and there's blessing and people come to to know the Lord and people are sanctified and, and, and there's all these wonderful things. And sometimes you step out in faith and you obey and you do the right thing and you get criticism and you get lambasted and people are angry at you for obeying the Lord. And one is not any better than the other in God's economy because what he calls us to is obedience and faith. He's the one who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And this is the way the Christian life has always been and will always be. The Great Commission, right? Making disciples, going to all the world. But Jesus didn't start there. He said, what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have, I have all authority. There's nothing that can happen to you that I'm not a part of that. There's nothing that happens anywhere in the universe that I'm not aware of and in control of. And, and so go to all nations because I have all the authority. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then what does he say at the end? And I'm with you even until the ending of the age. There it is. There's the mission. There's the path. There's the obedience that comes with joy and hardship. And on either side of that is, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I will hedge you in. I'll never leave you, forsake you. I'm with you to the ending of the age. All authority is mine. I'm with you. I'm with you. In obedient relationship, we have the person and the mission. And this is a signal to those who follow Jesus. The path leads to the cross. The inevitability of life in Christ is dying to ourselves, dying to our expectations, embracing suffering and counting the cost. And this was the experience for Mary in yielding to the spirit in carrying the God man in her womb, raising him and then standing by as he was crucified. What was it Jesus said in Luke chapter nine again? The son of man has no place to lay his head. Follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Jesus was clearly teaching that the Calvary road is a difficult road that requires sacrifice as we obey. And then Mary's words in Luke 1, 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. 
In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah, the town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby that was in her womb leapt. I don't, I never, I don't know what that feels like. Ladies, I don't know if you know what that feels like. And it's a, I don't know. I, I can't, I just can't. I, I just think it's cool, but I don't know what that, so Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now we know that they weren't calling each other and talking about this stuff, right? Understand, right? Because when Gabriel says, oh, and by the way, Elizabeth, who's been barren all these years, she's with child. She's six months along. That's news to Mary and Elizabeth, six months pregnant. They didn't, they didn't call each other on the phone, right? They didn't know. They didn't know. So now Mary's coming to the house. It's not like she called ahead and said, I'm on my way. I'll be there in like 10 minutes, right? She shows up, and what does is, what is Elizabeth do? Well, John the Baptist goes, he just kicks like, the, like her bladder. I don't know what he kicked, but she's suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she's exclaiming, blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How did she know that? Because the Spirit came upon her. That's a word of knowledge. She's filled with the Spirit. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, my baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So even Elizabeth knows from the Lord, from the spirit that Mary is walking in faith. She believes that God will bring these things to pass. She doesn't know how or when or exactly in what way, but she's walking in faith, walking in faith. Now, this is interesting because we talk about a crisis of faith and obedience sometimes leads to hardship. Um, years later, John the Baptist, remember he's baptizing in the River Jordan. Some of his own disciples go and follow Jesus. And the other disciples are like, aren't you mad? Like he's stealing sheep. And it's like, they're all his sheep anyway, just lay off. And so they, you know, then John the Baptist, he ends up in prison because he's preaching the truth and Herod's not happy and he's going to be put to death and he's in prison. So there's a scene in the, in the gospel of John where John the Baptist sends word to Jesus and says this. Now this is crazy. You think about what just happened. John the Baptist from pre-birth leaping in the womb because he recognizes not, not Jesus but the voice of Mary and he knows who just walked into the room right? as a, as a ba- baby in the womb crazy, right? So he's always known. When, when Jesus comes through and John's baptizing, what does he say? Look, there's the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I know exactly who that is. So why later in John's gospel would John the Baptist say to Jesus, send a messenger say, are you the one or should we expect somebody else? Where did that come from? Why would John the Baptist, after years of faithful ministry, years of calling people to repentance, publicly acknowledging the Messiah, suddenly be in a place of doubt? You know why? Because he's in prison and he's about to be beheaded. Because his obedience has led him to a place of pain and hardship, not prosperity. And now he's in a place of doubt. And so he sends word. He says, Jesus, are you the one? Or should I expect somebody else? Should we be looking for another Messiah? And this is what Jesus wrote back. He sends the word back to John. He says, tell John this. The blind see, the lame are healed the deaf hear, and the mute speak. And blessed are you if you do not stumble on account of me. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm doing all these miraculous things. I'm healing all these people. But John, my will for you is 
that you would languish here for just a little while longer and then die for me. Can you handle that? Can you handle that? Your purpose, John, was to be the herald, to be the forerunner, to come before and announce the coming of Messiah. And now your time is done and you're going to leave this world and step into the next. Are you going to stumble here at the end because this is my will for you? Or will you finish strong? Will you walk in faith and obedience even if it's costly, even if it costs you your life? Because sometimes faithful obedience doesn't just lead to hardship in this life. Sometimes it leads us to the end of this life. And the significance of Mary's life was not based on any of the things our world values so highly, her background, her physical appearance, her intelligence, her education, her natural gifts or abilities. It was Mary's relationship to Jesus that gave her life significance. And we would not be reading this account today if it were not for the fact that she was humble before God. The Lord is with you, Gabriel said, and that made all the difference in this woman's life. And it makes all the difference in our lives. Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, my brothers. I call this the great self-esteem passage of the New Testament. You ready for this? This is going to build you up. You're going to feel so good when you hear these words. Consider your calling. When Jesus stepped into your life and invaded your world and saved you, here's the reality. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. It gets worse. Because God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He's chosen what is weak. That's you. Just to be clear. I'm, 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 in the, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not just me, you, separate. I'm we, us, okay? This is us. He's chosen the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is lowly and despised in this world. Even the things that are not in order to bring to nothing the things which are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. I call this the last kids picked for theological kickball passage, right? You've all been, we've all been there, right? Elementary school, nobody wants to be the kid at the end, and the teams are like arguing, and I don't want to take him. No, you take him. No, I don't want him. Nobody wants to be that kid. And this is exactly what scripture says. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are, you're actually weak and foolish, and God has chosen you to glorify himself to make much of him, that he might pour out grace. It's not about your strength. It's not about your ability. It's about are you humble and willing and obedient before the Lord. And so as we approach Christmas, I would just encourage you to dwell upon, think upon, just immerse yourself in the faithfulness of Mary and what she was willing to risk to be part of that story because in her story, we're reminded that following Christ often leads to persecution. It leads to rejection by the world. And sometimes the price we pay for obedience is rejection. So just ask yourself, are you willing to surrender to God? Are we willing to be used for his purposes in the world? Are we willing to trust him to provide for us when the rest of the world turns its back on us? Are we counting the cost personally of following Jesus wholeheartedly because we are humble before him and he is worth all of our sacrifice? He's worth all of it. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be unto me according to your word. And Mary models for us here what obedience in the face of rejection looks like. We saw the focus of the Magi 
the disappointment of Joseph, and now we see the sacrifice and pain in the obedience of Mary. And those who participated in the first Christmas did so at great personal cost in order to be part of bringing salvation to mankind. My question to you this morning as we wrap up our time is, are you willing, are you personally willing to walk in obedience and faith to Jesus Christ in order that he might be made known to other people? Are you willing to walk in faith? Lord, pray right now that you would work that yes into our hearts. And there are some in the room who would say yes enthusiastically and mean it with every ounce and every fiber of their being. And there's some who would say yes enthusiastically who haven't counted the cost. Some of us with a more realistic view of life say uh, yes with a question mark at the end. And we want to say yes and we want to be all in, but we're afraid. There's fear and doubt. Would you meet us in that place of fear and doubt? assuage our fears fill us with your spirit and with your grace and enable us to walk in the fullness of your will for us we ask these things in your precious name amen